welcome to Cut Reveal. This is the show where we talk about the editing art form and all the hurdles of that career path. I'm Piotr, and this is my co-host, Ricky. Hey, everybody. So today we talk to Nicolas Monsur, who worked with Jordan Peele, who edited his two films, Nope and Us. That's right. Nicholas told us that he grew up in Hollywood, but went to art school in Chicago, but has always loved movies and like film theory. And after he was done with that, he basically started freelancing at anything that he could after school. So like web design, regular design, editing, shooting, all of that stuff. Then he made a film himself, submitted it to festivals, all that stuff, which gave him a lot of respect for the filmmaking process. Uh, he worked uh, for a nonprofit where he did, once again, everything, shooting interviews, editing. And then he was recommended by a director of a music video he worked on to edit a documentary show for HBO. At this point, he started to think about editing seriously. And then eventually he started working on Key and Peele with Jordan Peele, which is how they met. And then the rest is history. Niklas's story proves that you should do your best at every job because you never know where it leads. And with that... This is Nicholas Mansour, so let's roll the tape. Looking back, I can I know that it's led to all these things, but at each step there was a bit of trying there, there was a lot of not being sure if I could do a thing or if it would work or if they would hire me for it, trying to figure that out. Often the people hiring you are just looking at the last thing you did and the last thing you did is a comedy, they're like could you do a horror movie? Or, yeah, yeah um, probably not. So it's tricky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like people pigeonhole. Definitely. Your story like reminds of a very important lesson that like every project you work on can potentially grow into something much bigger that will change the trajectory of your career. I think it's happened yeah. in your case. So that's awesome. I think that's true. And I, I don't know why I knew that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or if it was just being so freaked out about failing, but I yeah, and I went crazy on every job, even if it was just like a mm -hmm, 30 mm -hmm. second web thing or whatever. I would just try and I was like, what's going to make me what's going to set this edit apart from anything else? And I want to leave there with them being like, I really like working with that person. And I they're definitely the best editor I've worked with. And I don't <laughs> know why I was so driven that way. But and I've had to actually learn how to relax more about that and just trust <laughs> that it will be fine. But yeah, I get it. It's a balance still. I, I'm very interested. Like once you got to work on us with Jordan Peele, did you study the film Get Out before you actually like got involved into us? Definitely. I'm a personal, or I guess my own style, not everybody works this way, is to inundate myself with references and information and so much that I'm not even, I can't even remember the specifics anymore, mm -hmm. but it's more mm -hmm. just about saturating my brain with the right kind of stuff yeah. so that I'm kind of floating in the right world. And But definitely in that case, I'd worked with Jordan and talked to him a lot about Get Out the whole time he was making it. Mm. So I kind of knew how that process went for him with the edit. He's so open with his process with his collaborators that he was talking to me. I read a very early version of the script for us. And he's talking with us all about like, I'm thinking about changing this to this. And I'm thinking, what do you think about that? And he sort of talks it all out with everybody and mm -hmm. really get led into his thought process from the beginning some yeah. directors, that's not really true. And you're always 
trying to figure out where they're coming from. So yeah, so that it wasn't it wasn't as crucial to dissect what he did and get out to know how he would want to do us because he was so open with his whole thought process. But it did I did also want to look at that to know not just how does he handle these things, what is the audience coming to the second movie loaded mm-hmm. up with and try and watch it different ways, you know, watching it thinking just about how the humor works and thinking just yeah. about how the framing and the music works and, you know, stuff like that to understand whatever people already are associating with him stylistically, I guess. Not that we were copying it, but just to know, like, this is different. This is brilliant because you have to set yourself for the audience that will follow from his previous film. And that's that's amazing. That's, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant tip, I think. I would say judge it on the project because some directors mm-hmm. don't care. Some pro- I think some okay. filmmakers are, the la- you know, they would, I mean, maybe they sh- all should. <laughs> but some directors are really, they're following the, purely a kind of internal barometer of this is right this isn't right or they have a very strict logic for this film in this film it's going to be different because i'm only doing long takes or i'm only whatever jordan is so obviously and wonderfully in this dialogue with the audience he's all goes on all the time with his twitter and the marketing the interviews he does and he built it keeps building this whole kind of ongoing discussion with the audience i think and he's so aware as a performer and as a writer just what they're bringing to it with the other movies that are out there and other movies they've seen and his other movies so with him i find it more important to have an (laughs) have a sense of what people Mm -hmm. seeing his films are coming in already Mm -hmm. expecting or thinking about i heard that lupita nyogo right do i pronounce Mm -hmm. it correctly You'd have to ask her. I think yeah, Nyango. That's very close. Very close. Yes, yes. She said that Jordan Peele is one of the greatest communicators she has ever met. So I wonder what was your experience when working on the edit with Jordan? I would uh, totally agree with her. And I, I think it's especially I see I hear that over and over again from every actor he works with. And I think he definitely has a special insight into what it takes from them from his own experience and he's constantly storing up his reactions and thoughts on the way other people do things and i think his whole career acting he was always looking at oh i wouldn't do it that way or i would do it that way or i appreciate when so he stored that up um (laughs) this is a dumb side story but i once went on a i went on a ghost hunting tour with him once in new orleans and the tour guide was so hilarious this character who was like trying to do a fake like pirate accent the whole time <laughs> and it was hilarious and we were all laughing and then i would just look at jordan and jordan was like studying <laughs> this guy i could tell he was dissecting everything he was doing anyway he's always doing that so i think with actors he has in a production all productions are different and i haven't been on set for a whole one in a long time but they can have this very focused energy where you're really it's like a it's such an intense thing to do to go film a movie and so you get into this sort of like military mindset where you're like okay i gotta get out I, even though i'm so tired i'm up i'm doing the thing i'm it's a 14 hour day i'm not sleeping enough i'm eating only when i can but i'm bringing and inevitably on an edit you dip and you go up and you and it's just a much longer 
process from the beginning to the end. So you go through it all with a director. You go through times when they don't know what's happening. You go through times when everything's amazing and it's the most fun Mm -hmm. ever. So it's a different process, I think, Mm -hmm. than being on set. And uh, you're just spending so much time together that it can't all be about the work and it can't all be super focused sometimes you just have to mess around it really depends on the amount of time you have the project and the people and how they get along so i feel extremely lucky to work with him because like i said when when i started working with him it's like you can make a joke about anything there's Mm -hmm. no ego and Mm -hmm. also you can talk about like lacanian philosophy and psychology and how we're interacting with the screen as a viewer and, you know, get really intellectual at the same time. And I think he, that's a unique quality, I would say, in in working with with Jordan in the edit room. But uh, he gives me a really long leash or whatever. Like I get to, I always think with him, we've talked about it so much. I've seen the storyboards. I've read the script so many times. I've seen the footage. I make the version I think he's expecting to see. And then I go off and I try completely different things if it makes sense to me, not just (laughs) sometimes just for fun, but mostly if I'm like, for whatever reason, when I watched this footage, I thought that performance is the one to focus on and nothing else is that important. So here's that cut too. And he always just wants me to show him the one that I believe in the most. And then if he is like, I think you missed the point or you didn't quite capture this thing I was going for that and I was unaware of it, then I go back and say, okay, maybe you mean this one that I started with. Or usually where we land is some unpredictable combination Mm -hmm. of all of this stuff that wasn't right where we started, but also wasn't just my idea either. Rarely does my thing just go all the way (laughs) to the end because it's a dialogue. So yeah, but it's really a freedom. He, and uh, he gives creative notes, not technical ones. He'll really, Mm -hmm. he'll say what, what the effect it's supposed to have. It leaves that last step up to you of, Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. I know the technique that I think, accomplishes what you're talking about or leave me alone i have to try some stuff because i don't know how to do what you're talking about or to sometimes say i don't think you can do what you're talking about because of this or this you know and if you really want to do that you might have to go reshoot this or that or but most of the time it makes sense and then towards the end if he still had if we still haven't got it like Mm -hmm. me the sound designer the composer what he's going for then he'll say you know what just cut He'll give us that if he really feels the need to, but it's the last resort usually for him. Yeah, you, you've mentioned long working hours. If you could like give us like a tour of your day when working on films like mm-hmm. Us or Nope, what's involved in the process? Like how much do you have to sacrifice to be able to work on films like that? Can you give us like a, you know, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed? I, I can try. I mean, I can tell you right off the bat, like I'm still figuring it out. Everyone, I'm still like, okay, this one I'm going to, try and do better with this or this um before they shoot i try and be involved if i can in the production meetings and script meetings and see the storyboard updates as they're making them just to catch anything that i think that's kind of thing that i feel like we will be struggling with in the edit that's the kind of thing we'll say why didn't he mention that in act one Mm -hmm. ever. So if the director's open to it, I'll share that those thoughts with them. 
but it's very just casual until day one of dailies is usually when I would start as well as preparing before the shoot with the director. I'll also be really trying to mind meld with an assistant editor so that we're prepared going in. And there's things I like to do to prepare for that. I'll break down the script a few different ways based on page count, scene number, when characters appear, stuff like that, just on my own time. And I'll share that with the assistant editors. They're kind of aware and then we also you often build like a when they're shooting what scene map. So I kind of have a sense of that because th- that's not really how they break it down for production. So um, do stuff like that. And then so by the time I go in, usually that production period is really intense for the assistant editors because they have to get there as early as the footage comes in and get it sorted and approve the dailies to go to the studio as early as possible or to go to back to the filmmakers as early as possible because they're all dying to see it from the day <laughs> yeah. before. So it's a lot they have to do first thing in the day, and often it takes the whole day. And meanwhile, I'm just starting to get started, where I'm like, ooh, I have a little bit of this scene now, and I have a little bit. So I'm re- it's, it's this crossing paths thing where their beginning is super intense, and mine is kind of chill. But I'm u- trying to use that time to make sure the project is sort of getting organized right with them and help them do that. And then also continuing any kind of building out of placeholder sequences I might want to do. Yep. Mostly I'm just reacting to it and not reading the script notes yet. I just try and have a cold reaction. Then if I know, okay, that I'm, that's a scene I could do an assembly of today and get out tonight so they could watch it tomorrow. Yeah. Maybe I'll, go for a walk or take lunch or something in between to clear my mind and think about it. Walking and breaking is so important. And that's something I keep having to remind myself of not just physically, obviously you have to do that, but mentally too. I probably have half the good edit ideas I have when I'm not at the Bay. And it's just a thing that pops into your head because you've watched these clips so many times your brain keeps working on the problem in the background. So try and do that. Even if people are like, this is insane and we have so much work. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll see you in 15 minutes. I'm just, you know, it's you have to have confidence to do that stuff. And you learn that. Yeah. After that, I'll I'll start building something. I'm really just going intuitively. I try and kind of load myself up with all the scripts, storyboard conversations, and then forget it when the footage comes in. <laughs> Obviously, you can't forget it. It's all there, but I'm not consciously thinking about it. So I'm like, okay, I now have a scene where that moment really gets my attention and it rings a bell from all the themes I'm aware of and, mm-hmm. or the, or I know just because I've read the script and plotted it out, this is right before a really scary thing happens. So it's kind of interesting how this character is making me feel really comfortable and safe. That could be great if the next thing that happens is really scary, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I just try and follow those impulses, build out an assembly. Then I read the script notes and I see, oh, actually the director totally loved this other thing that I decided wasn't important. (laughs) Or there's a note that's like, make sure to use this or make sure not to use this. I hate it. Whatever the director was telling the script supervisor when they were shooting. If I don't have a good reason to ignore that, if I don't think like, well, they didn't realize this or that, then I obviously go and make the version that I think respects their wishes the most. So then I know I have the, what I just instinct instinctively felt and that version. So that just, that process just goes on for a month or two months or three months Mm -hmm. when they're filming. And, uh, 
building bigger and bigger sections as you put things together into bigger chunks. You sit back and watch the bigger chunks. You realize how wrong you were about some (laughs) things. Uh, You realize how you were right about some things you changed. I try to understand with the director early what will work with for them, for me to send them while they're shooting. Mm -hmm. Some people really want you to send them something very simple that's just their circle takes together in a reasonable rhythm. Mm -hmm. And they don't want a lot of sound work. Maybe they want it cleaned up a little bit so they can just hear it. But usually the sound mix is pretty good. Some directors like that. Others really want to see as soon, like they really want to start to feel that the thing they're shooting is a movie. And they (laughs) will ask you, could you try some music on there? Could you try, or they're instantly, their first feedback is what if it's all sounds like it's in their head and, uh, and, you know, and they don't want to wait till later in the process to get into that stuff. So then I know that as I'm going and building these things, that's going to be a big part of my time. And so, and it usually is, sometimes 75, 80% of my time is actually on the sound and music work, the picture, because especially unscripted, if they're shooting very deliberately, there's a Mm -hmm. lot more to figure out with the sound and music than there is (laughs) with that. But that's not true if it's like like with Taika... (laughs) On a movie with Taika Waititi on a movie that, you know, there were, I think they shot 200 hours of footage for a two hour or an hour and a half movie. So that was a lot of just figuring out the picture stuff. Um, the goal being that by the time they finish within four or five days, you can press play on a whole cut. So you're all you're working towards that. <laughs> and that moment is always just in, insane. It's just crazy because I know from doing this a couple of times now, how differently I will think about everything after I'm able to watch it beginning to end. No matter how, I don't think no matter how many times I do it, I don't think, I don't think there'll be a time when I press play and don't think, oh, well, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I, I just, or I, where I do think that, um, yeah, but I try and make it watchable and judgeable as a movie if that's what the director wants. So um, my goal is always to have some idea for the temp music or a music palette. I'm trying to talk to the composer to understand what they're thinking, so I'm not going in a completely different direction. And I'm also learning to delegate more because sometimes mm-hmm. the director and producer will bring on a music editor mm-hmm. or a sound designer earlier, and you get to send them rough cuts, and they do things. Whereas I'm used to doing it all myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I experienced it as well. Like the, the fact when you put the scenes together for one of the short films, like we had the rough cut of each scene, but once we put them all together on the timeline, like the whole perspective yeah. changed. I want to ask you because like, I think like editing horror is, must be very satisfying because it involves first, of course, building suspense, suspense and like tension. But secondly, of course, there is a lot of building drama, right? Drama editing. There is also action editing to a great extent in most of the horror movies as well. And there is obviously mm-hmm. some kind of, a, at least there should be some kind of like comedic moments as well. Even if they are mm-hmm. like bloody or things like that, but still you, you have the humor, right? So right. you have all of this. So like, can you like pinpoint like any like a few tips that maybe you learned uh, when working on uh, us and nope. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Let me think about it. <laughs> I'm always aware that there's kind of two 
very broadly speaking, two ways that I'm approaching it. One is really instinctively where I'm just watching it and thinking, I don't know why, but I think that needs to happen there. I think that needs to be faster. I think it should get really quiet there. And I'm not questioning it or coming at it with a theory or a an idea. And then there's the other way where I'm, I've broken down how other scenes work and really, and then I'm thinking like, I want to approach this scene exactly this way. Cause that's a technique I know works in advance mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a tricky thing because it's, it ends up, I think that combination is important because those are the two ways that I feel like I watch things also watch other movies. So yeah. I guess in terms of Nope and Us, they were very different projects in so many ways, the way they filmed them, different DPs and very different looks. I guess in terms of the horror in particular or the the tension and suspense and thriller aspect, I like to start from a place of grounded realism with horror and suspense where film sound can be all over the place and usually it's mostly just dialogue that you get. So I'm really trying at first to create a really believable hemp sound environment. I'm spending mm-hmm. a lot of time looking for the right background mixture of sounds that gives me yeah. a feeling of actually being in that environment. And I'm trying to make the rhythm feel very natural with the dialogue, which sometimes that's how they're shooting and they're really getting a very natural rhythm other times because of the camera moves and the way they had to break it up you have to adjust it a lot just to make it feel natural once i get it in that point then i feel because i feel like if you can start to approach that point where you've leaned in and you're just there you have the much more gunpowder put into that gun trigger you can pull for a scare because you've really Uh leaned in if you're being affected the whole time For me personally, I feel like with thrillers and horrors, if the music or the sound design or the editing is is telling you over and over again, this is a really feel. Yeah, this has all been affected by the filmmaking over and over and over again. Then you. Yeah. Even though it might take more work to just get it to feel really organic and natural. And obviously that's subjective, too. So different people feel like certain things are more realistic or not. But that for me is a thing that I've, I've tried, has usually worked off, worked out well for me. Sometimes it doesn't fit the style of the project. And I just have to break out of that and think this is a different reality we're in, in this movie and figure that out. I don't know if that counts as a tip, but a a hefty, I mean, this is a good, you know, I have like two, four terabyte sound effects and music drives today. I'm constantly (laughs) building up. Anytime I meet anyone who's willing to just let me dupe theirs, every assistant Mm -hmm. I work with, a sound designer, and we're all sharing these libraries, which eventually I'll get replaced by the sound designer or whatever, but it's still, it's a big part of helping me find the feeling of of scenes. Um, And so, yeah, I'll use Easy Find to just scan these drives uh, and be like, different keywords and find things that way. I'm curious because most of the stuff you did up until us was all comedic. So how has that informed your editing with like horror? Cause I feel like comedy and horror is all about timing. So how did that inform mm-hmm. your editing with going from comedic stuff then basically to more suspense driven? It's a good question that I feel like, I think I've given different answers to, and I don't know if I've actually landed on, the real answer. I don't, cause I don't, I don't actually know because humor 
for whatever reason, I've always been attracted to both without really understanding why a lot of my, the way I grew up with friends, like, I like class clown and being the like muckrakers <laughs> and sort of doing improv without knowing we were even doing improv or even like playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff as a kid is like a weird kind of improv that you're doing. So yeah, yeah. I think that way of thinking that can be challenging. I've seen for some editors who never had that experience to go into comedy that is sort of Im- improvisational. And as an editor, you are kind of another improviser in the mm-hmm. scene because you get to kind of determine the timing of other people, which is part of what you're doing when you're improvising is you decide to cut someone off or give them silence. So anyway, you have this role in it as, so hopefully you're in on the joke. I know that there's something on. Un- unconscious and involuntary about both. And I know there's something about the building up of anxiety and the release of it in both comedy and horror. There's this, there's something about those rhythms of when you feel like you can relax and breathe out and the movie is, and you're with the movie. There's also something about social constructs and what makes you uncomfortable in both. Mm -hmm. And Something can be really funny. It can be really funny when somebody is oblivious or does something that's totally against the social norm, just walks into your house without saying anything or spills something and doesn't clean it up. That could also be really menacing (laughs) if somebody is just not interacting the right way with you socially or as a person. So I know that those things are all mixed up and then part of what you're doing with the filmmaking is taking a position to that is that Mm -hmm. funny or is that scary and i have a weird cross wiring in my brain where a lot of um films that i know other people find terrifying i laugh the whole way i find hilarious and they're also kind of terrifying (laughs) mostly with horror movies i laugh the whole time i don't know why it's always been that way it might be a nervous laughter which i think is also a good source of comedy and tension. But yeah, like David Lynch movies, like I'll laugh the whole time. And I think they're <laughs> great. But part of what I'm laughing at is sort of the audacity of what the yeah. filmmaker is doing. Right. And that's funny to me to think like an elaborate practical joke you're doing on a viewer when you're like setting up something is going to be really scary. And then at the last minute, it isn't scary. Right. And if you think about from the time that person wrote that, to then yeah. all the people who built all the sets, the casting yeah. of the actors and yeah. editing it and everything to the point just for you to watch a screen and go, oh, it's, it's kind <laughs> of hilarious how much work. So that's why horror kind of makes me laugh on like a meta level. I just think it's it's a funny thing to do to people. <laughs> yeah, I find myself leaning in when I know that this, there's something coming and then just being like, okay, here it comes. And then just like leaning mm-hmm. into it, just wanting to get the base of the full brunt of that scare or whatever is like absolutely i think you have to be aware with that mindset of if what the themes are that you're actually touching on for people watching it because obviously there is there's types of horror and also comedy i guess like satire where the subject matter is actually very serious that you're talking Mm -hmm. about like you're referencing for people real trauma sometimes that's not quite the (laughs) you can't just laugh at that quite the same way even though there might be a nervous laughter or something related to it. But in general, I think I don't want to say this for him, but I think Jordan is seems like interested in a kind of giddy 
form of thriller and horror where you really can there's a sort of joy in all of it in in yeah. the um even though like i th- you know there's elements of get out in us that are and nope that are very serious and could rep bring something up for people the take he brings to it i think the craft is such, is so elevated in what he does mm-hmm. where you're with the way it's filmed and performed and it has this very beautiful frame around it that makes you feel, I think, a little bit excited that somebody pulled this thing off. I, at least that's how I feel working on these things. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that Jordan and even like Quentin Tarantino, what they've done is they've taken genre and they've basically like polished it up and made it something that isn't something that people will turn their nose up at. You as an editor working on those types of films, as well as these directors that are doing it, are like taking what some would people would say is like the lowest of the low and elevating it to a place where it rightfully should be. Yeah. I, that's something also I never, I'm aware of the hierarchy of genres, but in terms of my, or like that are out there and that's that the perception of different genres being less worthy than others. But I, I've always had this thing of like my favorite book being either, I don't know, maybe one of Kafka's short stories or like mm-hmm. an Ursula K. Le Guin book. Like, you know, for me, in terms of how much I love things, it, it hasn't. And I think that's true for Jordan, too. I think it um, doesn't really affect how much we love things and how much we respect the creators of certain things, where they fall on that map. Right. And I also another thing about comedy and horror that I think attracts people who are more interested in the theory and the intellectual side of film and understanding how it works is that you're subverting social conventions in what's what you are normally allowed to do in a audio visual story. You get to, you get to use experimental techniques, but where the audience understands why you're doing it. Cause it's all for this effect on you, right? Either to make you laugh or to make, make you scared. Whereas in a drama or another kind of story, if you were to use, I like, I think of like Jacques Tati or something, which obviously not the, height of what people find funny (laughs) nowadays but using random sound effects in a scene if you weren't aware that that was the joke it would be experimental or really weird they are like a marx brothers movie you know they're full of insane meta jokes (laughs) that you're aware that that's the point like in a drama where the filmmaker's just doing it and not caring if you get it or not yeah it's supposed to confuse you (laughs) So anyway, it's just it's like a way of working in and trying and developing the pushing the medium, I think, while bringing the audience along often. And same with horror, like, you know, horror music, a lot of avant garde music, 20th century music got ended up becoming the soundtrack to a lot of horror like Hitchcock and later horror films. Just before we move on, I would just say that I think horror and comedy are probably the hardest genres or maybe within film because of the timing of it, because if it doesn't have the right timing, then you're not going to get that laugh and you're not going to get that scare. And I think there's a, an intelligence about that stuff that I don't think people really recognize compared to like the drama is always going to be the biggest thing that people want to see because it's traumatic and mm-hmm. serious. But when it comes down to like the mechanics of making somebody to laugh and or making somebody scared, it's much harder to do that easily. I know. you. Mean. I think you're right. And I think it reminds me because I played music growing up my whole life and it reminded me of I started on cello and learned like some <laughs> classical stuff. But then I like the next year started playing jazz and playing bass. Mm-hmm. And those two things I always felt kind of equally attracted to. 
very different ways of reading music or playing in a group. And I found that people had a lot more trouble who are classically trained playing jazz or improvisational music than the other way. Mm -hmm. And I think that can make comedy and horror really tough for people who didn't immerse themselves in that and don't just know those rhythms sort of already from having Mm -hmm. ingested so much of it. So pacing, like the one thing you would pinpoint as like, the challenge, of course, right? In, in horrors. I think so. I've learned that like with directors, you'll disagree on that mm-hmm. so much. So it's also a matter of, te- that's why testing is really important with both because it sort of settles those dis- disagreements where you're like, oh, I guess the audience thought that was too slow or <laughs> they missed that, you know, anyway. Did you have a lot of audience screenings? Jordan is has a very open door with his collaborators, so he'll bring yeah, yeah, in people. Yeah, yeah. Like he'll bring the DP in, he'll bring actors he knows in, he'll bring <laughs> you know his wife and their friends, and there's a lot of informal screening going on and feedback for him. And he lets me do the same with my friends. So I uh, oh, we get cool. a lot of feedback from people who don't know the story going throughout. But then yeah, a couple <laughs> of bigger screenings. Part of the reason there are more with Jordan is that the studio just trusts him because he kind of invented the Jordan Peele movie. They don't let, they don't really know. I mean, they did, they actually give very good feedback at universal. I'm very like, I I, coming from being like an art film and stuff. I wanted to be like, nah, like never listen to the studio. And then actually you make a pretty good point there. I think you're right about that. So uh, I I know that sometimes editors and including myself are tempted to, like misjudge producers, but the truth yeah. is that very often like producers make very good notes, very often have a very good, good sense about how audience reacts. By the way, I, I have never asked how this this process of like test screenings actually look like because you get the ballots from the from the audience, right? Mm-hmm. How is it then like accumulated and like, you know, uh, basically feed it to you, the, the, this feedback? Do you get like the ballots or do you get like a written down version, a summary of it? How, how does this process look like? Like everything that in my experience in film, TV world in America, at least there's no rules for any of this stuff. There's mm-hmm. a, always people who did it one way the last time and will tell you these are the rules, but there aren't really rules. Everybody does it differently. And it really is up to the filmmaker, the director and their trusted producers to drive how that goes. I think a lot of people just let that because they're nervous about that. They'll let the studio just do it. But anyway, mm-hmm. the director and producer get the whole stack of 400 cards or whatever. I also ask for those and I go all weekend and I read as many as I can stomach. And then it's a Rorschach. Does it validate or invalidate something I've been feeling? And then I think about that. And if there's something coming up all the time in the cards and you know that's something people are going to think about, do you want them to think about that or not? It doesn't tell you what to do. And I hate when people, I think it's unfortunate when people think that it gives them a plan of what to do because Uh it doesn't. It's not a room full of other directors and writers, you know, it's a room full of viewers and gives you a feeling of how people will view it, but that's it. We we always like to ask about inspirations, your inspirations. Like, do you have like your favorite, it could be like a filmmaking book or just a, a recommendation of a film that you adore and mm-hmm. would like to recommend to others. It changes all the time. 
That's such a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Recently, for some reason, I keep coming back to this. I think I've watched it. I think I've watched it four or five times in the last year. And I don't know. I don't know why exactly other than that. It is an absolutely beautiful film called the, it's called the spirit of the beehive. It's a sort of surreal horror film from the seventies that really pulls off things that I, when I'm watching, I'm like, Oh, I see how you did that. And then within a week, I'm like, wait, how did they do that? I don't understand. It creates effects when watching it. It's through the eyes of a, child kind of and it's hard to explain why but if you're looking for an unusual scary yet really emotional and interesting <laughs> film I, I, it's one i keep coming back to for every on every level the music the act, everything the things that i that inspired me the most there's a filmmaker named pedro costa he's a portuguese filmmaker who inspired me in school because he shoots his films on a DV camera and now mm-hmm. he finally upgraded to an HD HVX mm-hmm. I think he uses no lights he lights with mirrors and he just does the boom himself and he wins can and they're the some of the best films ever made and it, it just shows you how much you can do with very little which I think is worth remembering because I think mm-hmm. there can be an overemphasis on yeah pummeling the audience with how much money went into something as a Mm -hmm. shortcut to it being important (laughs) or or, uh, we're thinking about um so the him and there's a number of filmmakers from the like southeast asian new wave that similarly inspire me like uh siming liang is one the taiwanese filmmaker that again the movies are very deceptively simple for how much they blow your mind with so Mm -hmm what seems like very little resources. So that inspired me when I was starting out because it just took away the mystery of like, okay, if I were to try to make a film, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to wait until I have a hundred million dollars to try mm-hmm. and make something meaningful. Do you have like project you're working on that you could share details about? I think I can. Uh, we, it hasn't started yet. Um, I tried to take more time after Nope because Nope was a very long yeah. project, especially from when I first was trying to work it into my schedule. I was actually, yeah. it, it was, it was years. So uh, I tried to take a little bit more time and think about hard about what I wanted to do. And um, so there's a movie that uh, called, it's called the nickel boys. Uh, it's based on a Colson Whitehead novel mm-hmm. and it's being directed by a really interesting director named Ramel Ross. It's his first narrative feature, but he made a beautiful, amazing documentary called Hale County this morning, this evening. He shot it all himself. It's just beautifully photographed, really interestingly (laughs) edited film. And he's a fine artist and photographer. So he's going to, he's bringing this visual art know-how and practice to this narrative film. And it's being produced by plan B who makes really interesting films, um, a really amazing producer, Jocelyn Barnes. So anyway, a whole group of people I haven't worked with before. It's in New York. Mm-hmm. It's a different, whole different set of mm-hmm. people in a very different approach coming from this. It's more dramatic and more visual art based. Where can people follow your work? Well, I have a website that I try and put weird things on. I'm on Twitter, just usually talking about corrupt LA politicians uh, or sometimes <laughs> films. Yeah, those are the two places. It's just my name in both cases. So thank you for doing this. Definitely. And 
There's a Blu-ray coming out that has more stuff on it on Nope later this year that they're releasing. So keep an eye out because, yeah, maybe waiting will be smart because you'll get to see it all. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that really stood out to me was he really inundates himself with like a lot of references in regards to whatever he's going to edit. So with like us and with probably Nope, he probably like watch a ton of similar type videos just to get himself in that mindset. And then, you know, him talking about how he, because he had talked with Jordan Peele a lot in regards to get out, he like had a very specific mindset getting into, I don't know, that edit mode for those movies. So I thought that was really interesting because that was the first time that we had heard, heard it from an editor. Yeah, and I think to some extent it's intuition that you want to watch stuff that is similar to what you're about to edit. I try to do it occasionally. For example, for Call of the Bird, we watched with the director, we watched, rewatched uh, in his case. We need to talk about Kevin because this was like mm-hmm. a reference of like a difficult child, uh, you know, this kind of stuff. And also Revolutionary Road, which was stylistically similar to some extent. So both these films. And I know that you also liked what he said about the editor being an improviser in the editing yeah, room. Yeah, yeah which mm-hmm. I so much subscribe to. I think this is a paraphrase what, what, I, what I've heard like a few times already of an editor being like an invisible performer in the edit bay, right? So definitely that's the truth. We, we construct performances that are not there, that were right. shot, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Um, in two weeks, it's going to be our season finale and it's going to be a doozy. So hopefully you guys will come all of you men and women and editors to listen to us talk to whoever our surprise guest is. If you want to contact us, Peter and I, about the show for ideas, comments, how we can improve, how we can stop talking about whatever. Yes, we really want to hear from you. So you can reach us by the email. You can reach us on Instagram at cut to reveal. And then there's also a link for a speak pipe. All of these All of this information will be in the comments below, not the comments, but the description. So you can do that. We would really like to hear from you. Other than that, I think that's it. Peter, do you have anything else that you want to add? Just that we are getting ready for season two. So really, we want to hear from you. Like, let us know what you liked in this season and what you want to, you know, see or hear or whatever in the next one. We really, we really want to hear from you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, That's enough. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this on. Your reviews help other editors to discover the show and tell your friends. Also, if you have any questions or comments, leave us a message at SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description or email us at podcast at cuttothepoint.com.